Father, I thank you that when we are at right relationship with you, when we're at peace with you, Lord, there is peace in our soul. As a matter of fact, the prosperity that we sense in our lives is even greater than economic prosperity. We just read that, Lord. We thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that uh, as we relate to you, as we cry out to you, Lord, we can bring everything in our life to you, every situation, every uh, challenge, every blessing. We can bring all of these things to you, Father, as we live with you moment by moment and day by day. Father, I pray tonight, even as we have your word unfolded before us, I pray that you'll open up our souls. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, that you would come and invade our innermost being and touch the places in our soul that may have long been forgotten, Lord, and that you would do a work of healing, a work of encouragement, a work of comfort, a work of renewal, a work of restoration, Lord. I pray that you will do a very deep and trans- transformational work in our hearts. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. How many are believing for great change? All right, let's open our hearts to God. We're gonna go into his word. We're in the gospel of Mark. And I'm gonna do something I have never done before. You know, I've, that's, that's saying something. I've been a pastor a long time. I'm actually gonna preach on the exact same text I preached on last week. And I'm gonna preach in a totally different sermon. How's that? Can we do, is that possible to do? Absolutely, the Bible is so layered. There was so much last week, I left some stuff untouched on purpose because there was just too much information. So now I'm gonna look at this information that we didn't even look at last week that I believe is extremely insightful and powerful. So we're in Mark chapter 11 again uh, this evening. Now, uh, how many have ever bought a book that really captured you and you couldn't put the crazy thing down? Anybody ever do that? Yeah, I'm a reader. I love doing that. And I, I bought a book here, and it really messed with my head. I just I couldn't stop reading the thing. It was that compelling, and it was actually a story of a young man. And, and I'm, I'm going to just share a little bit of his story. In January 24th in 1983, Time magazine published an article entitled, An Eye for an Eye. It was basically about capital punishment. You know, there's a huge debate going on in the United States. You know, Canada, we don't practice capital punishment, but the United States still does. Huge debate whether someone who takes someone's life should actually experience the death sentence or they should they experience just life imprisonment. And so this magazine article is really touching on this situation. And so in this magazine article, uh, this fellow by the name of Kurt Anderson wrote this statement. He said, death row is about the same size in Alabama as it is in other states, where 55 men await the electric chair in Holman. Holman is the name of a community in the most southern part of the state of Alabama. He writes, Mitch, Mitchell Rutledge, 23 years old, IQ 84. Now, I don't know if you know anything about intelligent quotients, you know, the IQ scores. 84 is not a good score. I'm going to tell you right now. That's uh, just a little bit above where you can actually mentally function. Okay, so this is not a very affirming comment. And he says, IQ 84 is among them. To most people... The life of a foolish punk like Rutledge does not count for much. Kind of bringing out his, some of his emotional feelings here. He says, he is defective. His death would not be unbearably sad. There are guys not worth killing. 
Let Rutledge sit and stew in his eight foot by five foot pen in Alabama. Forget him. Now, those words, you know, actually transform Mitchell Rutledge's life. And I'm going to explain why. In this book called Death on Hold, Mitch Rutledge is now quoted as when he heard that, he said, Time Magazine uh, was right. But the facts, I was illiterate, I could not read or write at all, I had no friends, I had no family that cared, my mother was dead, my father deserted me at birth, I was constantly in trouble as a teenager, I spent years in jail and even in prison, and I even killed a guy. He was 21 years old, he was high on drugs, and the guy that he killed was another, you know, a distributor of drugs. I mean, this is kind of a, you know, he grew up in a very, very violent situation, grew up on the streets, and now... I was on death row waiting to die. And I told Time Magazine, I just want to let everyone know that I'm sorry for what I did. And they said, he is defective. Forget him. Forget him. I was already forgotten. But I cried out to God for friends, and I cried out to God to give my life meaning and purpose. And it was at that point that God put my death on whole. Now let me just give you a little something of what's really going on in the story. This young man who was totally illiterate and so so often when he would have an opportunity to get a job he couldn't even fill out the application he was too proud to admit he couldn't read or write so he'd, he'd walk out he wouldn't apply for the job because he couldn't make an application. He was at a, a deficient level in that sense. You know he had gone to school but he had didn't, hadn't learned anything and so he was always you know, struggling to make money, you know, as a young person. And his mother, I think, died in her 20s. She had three other children by three different fathers. Uh, he ran the streets. And so when Mitchell Rutledge made this prayer, he basically said, God, give me friends. Because in the prison system, you cannot have friends. Because the moment you have friends there now, you're responsible. It's kind of like a pack. You know, if they get into trouble, you have to rescue them, you know. And, and there's so much knifing and brutality in these prison systems that he says it's not even a good thing to have friends. So really, Mitchell Rutledge was friendless. His three other step-siblings never visited him. He was totally isolated. He spent, on death row, he said, you spend 23 hours and 15 minutes per day in your cell. Your people around you, you can, you know, chat with them, and you're kind of sharing a television. There's all kinds of arguments about what you're watching, and in those 45 minutes, a lot of activity happens. A lot of brutal activity occurs. And so he prayed. He said, God, please give me a friend. Well, while he was in prison, he made a decision. You know, he wanted to, you know, kind of better himself. You know, he's reflecting on what he did, and he actually did feel bad about his crime. He felt sorry about that. And so one day, he saw a young person in the prison. He was a lot smaller. Mitchell is about 6'3 and 200-some-odd pounds, and so people didn't totally mess with this guy. And he helped this young guy, and he saw him one day. He was reading a book, and he said, what are you reading? And the guy said, well, I'm reading a Bible. 
And he said, well, what's that all about? And he says, it's about getting to know God. And Mitchell, you can get to know God, and God can be your friend. Hey, it's a key, key word, right? He's friendless. God can be your friend. And God is real, and if you'll pray this prayer, God, if you're real, make yourself real to me. God will answer that prayer. And so Mitchell cried out to God. He was friendless. He said, God, I want to know you. I want to know if you're real. And at that moment, the presence of God, the Spirit of God came over him. And at that moment, he, he said, I never felt anything like it. I felt joy. I felt peace. I felt this warmth come over me. It was an amazing experience. And so the next day he prayed. He said, God, I want to know you. And that same sense of God's presence invaded his soul. And on the third day he prayed the same prayer and the same presence came and invaded his soul. And on the fourth day he prayed and nothing happened. Because you see, God isn't just interested in us having an emotional experience. And Mitchell knew he wanted to get to know this God, but he didn't know how to read. And even though he had a Bible, he wanted to learn so desperately. And so he would watch some of the television commercials, and he was sounding out words, and eventually he taught himself how to read. It's amazing. Meanwhile, Time Magazine decides to do this article, and so they approach different inmates in the death, you know, in, in this basically where, you know, death row is what they call it. And, and nobody wanted to do the interview because nobody wanted to be made fun of by, you know, this reporter. And so Mitchell said, I'll do it. And so, of course, all the other inmates made fun of him. And they said, they're going to make you look stupid, Mitchell. You're going to regret and rue the day you ever did this interview. But he did it anyways. And you saw the quotes and everybody laughed at him and scoffed and mocked at him. But you know, it was because of that Time Magazine article that God answered Mitchell's prayer because Mitchell said, please give me friends. And in 1983, some people read that article. A lady by the name of Lillian from California read that article. Something stirred in her heart. And she decided that she was going to write Mitchell a letter and, you know, let him know that, you know what, he is not defective, that someone does care about him. He is not forgotten. And so she wrote him a letter. And meanwhile, this other gentleman from a northern state who happened to be a history professor at a university who had just become a Christian the year before wrote a letter back and he said, Dear Mitchell, I want you to know that what you did was wrong, but the way you have mentioned that you were sorry for your actions, he said, that was a good thing and I want you to know that before you are executed, I want you to know the goodness of God and the forgiveness of God. And so Bert began to write, Mitchell. And Mitchell wrote back, probably like a grade one person, block letters, wrote back to both of these individuals. And he said to Bert, he says, I did meet God in prison. And this began a correspondence between Lillian and Mitchell and Bert and Mitchell. And oh, by the way, Lillian was a nun from Southern California, you know. And this began an amazing relationship. And so this entire book is the story of how Mitchell Rutledge was eventually moved from the sentence to execution to parole, I mean, uh, life imprisonment without parole. And so Mitchell, uh, Rut, uh, Mitchell Rutledge is still in prison here. When I read the book, the book just got published in 2015. He's still in prison. He served all of his life from 21 years old. He's now 57 years old. He's lived in prison all his life. But it is an amazing story. Because what happened was God not only gave him friends, not only did these people become lifelong friends in his life and their families befriended him and some other people got involved in his life and he became an amazing person. He, he actually began to minister to the prisoners in prison and began to, you know, by his transforming life, by being rehabilitated in a system that does not produce rehabilitation. But because of the grace of God and his willingness to surrender to God, his life became transformed to the point where tour groups 
would come in and he would speak about making the right kind of choices in life and how he did not blame his past, his upbringing or any of those things but talked about some of the poor choices he had made and how in one day his whole life was changed but he said, you know, you can change your life in one day if you'll give your life to God and he began to share. Very powerful. And then one day... He had did a video, spoke to all kinds of school students all across the state of Alabama and pretty soon it went to other states, you know, sharing this amazing message of how, you know, you have the power to say no to things. You have to make choices and make good choices. And so one day, a bunch of the cellmates said to him, hey, you know, Mitchell, you're on the news. And you know, a lot of those people in prison play a lot of mind games. And uh, he thought he was, they were just pulling his chain and he just said, and, but people kept coming up to him and says, hey, Mitchell, you're on the news. And so finally he realized, maybe I am on the news. And so, you know how the news keeps playing the same stuff over and over again. So on a different time, he went into the room and to watch what was going on. And sure enough, there he was. He was on this video on TV. And there was a young person there and his mother. And this young man said, I want you to know that Mitchell Rutledge saved my life. Because when I heard his message, I made a profound choice. And I turned away from a life of crime. And I turned in the right direction. And his mom was sobbing, and she says, I just want you to know that this young man, Mitchell, saved my son's life. And at that moment, God's spirit dropped into his life, and God spoke into his spirit, and he said, you know, you took a life, and now you've saved a life. And he realized that God had answered the second part of his prayer, that God not only had, you know, given him friends, but God had given him purpose and meaning in life. How many say that almost seems incredible? That just seems almost impossible. Someone in isolated confinement, someone who couldn't reach out to people, someone who couldn't read or write, someone who couldn't even make phone calls, someone who felt forgotten and alone, someone who cried out to this amazing God, and God answered his prayer in such an amazing way. How many think prayer is such a dynamic element, and it's so critical in the Christian life? You know, last week we examined in Mark's gospel, you know, some of the comments of Jesus as he was moving into the city of Jerusalem on this great event. We call it Palm Sunday. It was a triumphal entrance. We looked at Jesus' actions as he came to the temple, as he cursed a fig tree, and all that that meant. Not only was it an enacted parable, and it was a revelation of the state of the people in that day, you know, basically promising. The leaves were actually promising something they couldn't deliver. And, you know, I I spent last week talking about how important is it that we're not living a life of pretense, that there's authenticity, and God's really concerned about, you know, is there fruit in our lives? And God is a fruit inspector, by the way. And that God is evaluating our lives. We need to realize that. And we we spoke about that, but you know, uh, and and I spoke about really having genuine change in our lives. But now I want to come back and speak around this text on the issue that I skipped last week. And it's the issue of prayer. Effectual prayer. And Jesus talks about it. Let's pick it up in Mark chapter 11 and verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple there and began to drive out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And last week I brought out the fact that, you know, the temple court area was 35 acres in size and it was probably a minor disturbance. But in that minor disturbance, Jesus was trying to communicate something very powerful. Because you see, the religious establishment was all about, you know, an economic reality for them. This was big business, and I talked about that. And I talked about how many lambs were slaughtered on a certain Passover. I think I shared it was 255,666 A.D. That's a lot of lambs being killed. I just talked about all of those things last week. 
And some of you were here and you heard that. And others of you, if you want to hear it, it's on a podcast. Thank God for technology, right? You know, but Jesus, you know, was upset about that. And then, and then he said this, and as he taught them, he said, it is, is, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? And I chatted about the mindset in that day and age was that, you know, there was a sense of exclusivity, a sense of, you know, uh, inaccessibility. Now, we talked about how the Old Testament was really all about revealing to us how God was other than we are. God is holy. He is not like humanity whatsoever. And that for you and I to come into the presence of a holy God, you and I need to be holy. And what we recognize is we're not like him. And therefore, we don't have that freedom and that accessibility to come into God's presence. We just cannot come and pray at any time we want to, according to the Old Testament. It was a lot more difficult. And then we read in the Old Testament that only one man, once a year, could actually enter God's very presence. And that was the high priest, and he could not come into that presence without the shedding of blood. He had to shed blood not only for his sins, but also for the sins of the nation. And then, you know, we find that when Jesus died on the cross, what actually happened there, there was a a very symbolic moment where the Bible says that the temple curtain, the veil between the the most holy place and the holy place was torn from the top to the bottom. And the book of Hebrews is basically saying that you and I now have a new and a living way into the presence of the living God. And so it's all about access to God. And so you and I today are experiencing this ability to communicate with God at any time and anywhere. We don't have to go to Israel today. We don't have to go to the temple site. We don't have to get to the most holy place. You and I are living in that place because God had always in his mind wanted to create a temple, not made with human hands, but God wanted to create a temple. And you and I know that the temple is our bodies and the spirit of God lives within us and we can communicate with God. When Jesus cursed the fig tree, Jesus was launched into a short explanation of what real praying is all about. And I love what Alan Cole, he's a New Testament scholar, writes. He said the disciples did not, as some might today, find any moral problem in the cursing of the fig tree. I mean, that's probably uh, true. I mean, today we'd have all kinds of environmentalists saying, you know, look at Jesus, he's killing a tree. He'd be in trouble. Isn't that true? You know, I'm kind of poking a little fun, but you know, we, we go overboard as human beings. Let's face it, we're extreme. You know, we get all indignant. You know, what did this tree do? Why did it have to be cursed? You know, Jesus was teaching a lesson. We need to understand that. You know what the disciples were amazed by? Not that the tree died. Not that Jesus had the authority or what's he doing cursing a tree. They were amazed at the fact that the tree actually responded so quickly to his curse. I mean, here was a tree that was, you know, full bloom with leaves and it was full of vitality or it appeared to be. And the next day when they came by, it was wilted and dead. How many think that's kind of impressive? Wow, I mean, Jesus, he really has authority. He can speak to things, and things really begin to happen. You know, their remark was amazed that the Lord's cursing was so effectual and immediate. You know, we're kind of shocked by this. Do you realize um, in James chapter 5, as uh, this biblical scholar writes, it's noteworthy that the two chosen illustrations of the efficacy of earnest prayer are one in cursing and the other in blessing. I don't know if you guys ever thought of this. I hadn't really considered this before. Think about it. When we talk about what is effectual prayer, think about it. James says this, you know, the, 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 the righteous, the, the fervent uh, prayer of a righteous man avails much. In other words, it's effectual. 
And then he gives the illustration. What's the illustration? It's Elijah. What is Elijah doing? Elijah prays, God, don't let it rain for three and a half years. Well, he just, I don't think he prayed for a time zone. I think he just prayed, God, don't let it rain. How many go, that's kind of a curse? Isn't that kind of weird? How many think that's kind of weird? How many say, that's not the kind of praying I would do? But let me explain why he did that. Can I give you kind of an explanation? And it'll make sense to you right in a moment. Let's think about it. The covenant that God had made with Israel, they were his covenant people. God says, if you will obey me, I will bless you. And if you will disobey me, I will close up the heavens. And because Israel had disobeyed God so flagrantly and had been warned so many times, Elijah finally said, God, when are you going to discipline these people for their violation of my covenant? And God said, right now, in the heavens, shut. No rain, drought, three and a half years. Well, how many know that when people start suffering, people start thinking and reflecting? You know, when, when life is good, we just do what we're going to do. Isn't that true? I mean, while we're making big dollars, we don't have time for God. But I'll tell you, if the socket, you know, the little fountain of blessing stops, we start doing a little reflecting. What do you think is happening in Alberta right now? See, I don't think we all connect all the dots. But the economics is really related to how we're relating to God as a people. People started thinking. Elijah's on the scene. He finally, you know, his life is threatened by King Ahab. And eventually Elijah shows up and says, okay, bring all of your false prophets. Bring, bring all of your false system to Mount Carmel. And we're going to have a little showdown. I love that showdown. It's found in 1 Kings 17 and 18. You can read about it. And there's 850 false prophets and there's Elijah. He says, go ahead. Call on your God, Baal, and have him. He was, by the way, the fire God, lightning God. Have him call down fire from heaven, consume his sacrifice. How many know nothing happened? So he's mocking them. And then later on, Elijah builds the, you know, the situation all of a sudden. When he builds his you know, altar and repairs the altar, speaking of you know, broken altars, speaking of a neglect of really connecting with God, pretty soon fire comes down from heaven. People fall on their face because Elijah had said to him. How long will you halt between two opinions? If God is God, worship him. If Yahweh is God, worship him. You know, and if Baal is God, worship him. And I'll tell you, when that fire came down from heaven and consumed Elijah's sacrifice, you know what the people did? They hit the ground and said, Yahweh is God. And the moment they did that, Elijah said, okay, God, you need to open the heavens. The people have repented. That's the condition. Elijah marches up to Mount Carmel, gets on his knees, begins to pray, and you know what happens. Rain starts pouring down after three and a half years of no rain. I mean, that's an amazing story. You know? So it, the story is really built with blessing and cursing, but how does that fit to us? Well, it's a solemn reminder to us that prayer is not just simply asking God for the pleasant things we desire. Isn't that kind of how we do most of our praying? God, I need this. God, would you watch over that? God, would you provide for this? God, would you bless me with that? Hey, my journal's full of that stuff. I don't think it's wrong to ask God for help in our lives. I don't think that's a problem, but I think that's not all what prayer is about. There's another whole side to praying that we rarely, rarely consider. And it's simply this. It, there needs to be an earnest yearning for and an entering into the will of God for ourselves and others, be it sweet or bitter. What am I talking about? I want you to think of the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane. Jesus is now praying to his Father. Isn't that true? 
He knows that the only way to bring salvation to humanity is if he loses his life. And he's, he's praying and he's saying, God, if there's any other way, do it that way. But you know what? I don't want what I want. I want what you want. Not my will, but yours be done. And isn't it interesting when Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, which includes us? What did he do when he's teaching us the Lord's Prayer? How many recognize part of that prayer goes something like this? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And how many times in our lives when we're praying, you know, it's about what I want. But sometimes we have to rethink and say, God, is it really what you want? Well, Let's look at these two conditions Jesus spoke about in experiencing effectual prayer. And the first one, just two points. And these are not my conditions. These are the conditions that Jesus laid out in Mark chapter 11. The first condition is simply, you know what? If we're going to be effectual in our prayer, in other words, if we're going to see answers to prayer, how many want to see answers to prayer? You know, then first of all, we have to have the first condition met, and that's faith. We have to believe. The most important thing we need to understand about prayer is that we must believe God. We must believe that God exists and we must believe that God will say and do what he says he will do. And God will do it. You know, there's a lot of texts of scripture that teach us this fundamental and critical aspect of our life with God. As a matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 11, verse six says, without faith it is impossible to please God. We have to believe that God exists, number one. How many people, there's a lot of people struggling. Does God even exist? We have to settle that issue in our soul. God, you are real. You do exist. And anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he what? Rewards those who earnestly or diligently seek his face. You know, I can tell if we're real believers or not. God can tell too. Do we persist in prayer? Do we have faith in God? You know, just because God doesn't answer initially, sometimes God is really testing us to see, you know, do we really believe? Are we really going to trust him? James tells us that when we ask, we must believe. Listen to what James says. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask of God and gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. How many know when God, when you and I come to God, God's not a fault-finding God? And man, if God did that, none of us could handle it. How many know if God wants to put his fingers on the bad stuff in our lives, he can make a list, and some of it would blow our minds because some of it we don't even know about ourselves, and God goes, yeah, but it's there. So when you and I come to God, if it's about finding fault, we're all going to flunk. And yet the scriptures teach us in the book of Hebrews that we can come with confidence before the throne of grace to find you know, mercy and help in our time of need. In the moment that we least deserve it, in the moments that we're the most messed up, that's the moment we need to go to God. And we can have the confident assurance that God is not going to turn us away. He's not looking at our faults. He's looking past our, our faults and he sees our need. Aren't you glad for that? I am so glad God doesn't look at me and say, oh, I'm going to pick out all your faults. No, he's, he's looking at the needs in my life and he sees that when I come to him, I need him. It says, but when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. How many know doubt is a huge problem? How many times when we're praying, we just go, I don't know if God's really going to do this or not. We've got to get that out of our head. God, you're capable of this. Because he who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. What's that verse saying? It's basically saying that the wind, in this case, is defining the behavior of the waves. And how many know that doubt defines the behavior of the believer? We're just moving all over the place. We're vacillating. As a matter of fact, James goes on, that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. You know, 
what this really tells me is most of us are wishy-washy. We're all over the map. We really don't believe it. And so Jesus is trying to explain to us, if you want to be a person that sees answers to prayer, get out of that game. You and I have to have a little more confidence in that. And Jesus illustrates the power of faith with a Hebraic hyperbole about the moving of a mountain. Listen to what he says here in Mark eleven twenty two, When Jesus, when Peter points out, look what happened to the fig tree, Jesus says, have faith in God. I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will happen will be done for him. Now, I don't think Jesus is trying to get us to rearrange geography. I don't think that's what that text is all about. I think this is a, a figure of speech. I think it's uh, a metaphor. What Jesus is saying that, you know, mountains are difficult to move around. As a matter of fact, isn't it interesting when you read the story, you know, he's looking at the Temple Mount. You know, Herod had reduced a mountain to help build the 35 acres. So maybe he was somewhat alluding to that. How many know moving mountains is still difficult today? You know, it's not impossible, but it's extremely difficult. And what Jesus is saying, that there's many things in our life that are extremely difficult. Isn't that true? And there are many things in our lives that, humanly speaking, are impossible for us. But with God, all things are possible. And God wants us to look away from what our weaknesses are and the human limitations of life and say, with God, this is possible. may not be possible. It's like Mitchell Rutledge I mean, there was no way in the world that God, you know, how many say this is ironic that a little African-American kid all of a sudden connects with a nun in California and a history professor in, you know, some northern state in the United States. How many say that's, that, that was like a mountain? But God made a way. Isn't that amazing? And sometimes it's in the lowest points of our life. When he was being ridiculed by Time Magazine, it was actually the vehicle that God was using to answer his prayer. Isn't that beautiful? You know, sometimes we look at our own crisis situation and we don't even realize that God is using that moment to answer our cry. It's an amazing thing what God can do. Faith is more certain of God's steadfastness than of human inabilities and vicissitudes, which are, you know, those unwelcomed events in our lives, the uncertainties of our lives. It's easy to say we believe God until we're forced to believe. How many know that's true? You know, I really believe God. Then a crisis comes into our life, and then we go, do I really believe God? Right? Now we're forced to trust him. When situations are required that we have to trust them, and the Israelites were, you know, and and I want to do something tonight, because I've been reading the book of Numbers, and how many know that 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 Paul writing to the Corinthians says, you know, we need to learn from the examples of the people in the past. How many know that's true? As a matter of fact, he, he, he brings it out in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, these things are for our typos, our example. We have to learn from their behavior. You know, what, you know when, how many have ever read the book of Numbers? Just give me a show of hands. You've read that book. How many know one of the premises in the book of Numbers is the people were not a happy group as they were traveling through the wilderness? As a matter of fact, there's about 10 major complaints against God while they're traveling through the wilderness. And you know, Generally speaking, these people who had been delivered from slavery, delivered from Egypt with great miracles on their behalf, now are grumping. You know, grumping about conditions. And by the way, if you think that they're bad news dudes, don't look too far because you and I are tramping through this wilderness called life for the last 40 some odd years. And don't tell me now that you've never complained about your, your condition. Come on now. We've all done it. 
It's amazing that God puts up with our nonsense, you know. Here God gives his life for us, saves us, delivers us from sin, sets us on this beautiful path, and all of a sudden, pretty soon, we're unhappy with our present condition. And we're grumping. We're complaining. We're murmuring. You know. And here they were in the wilderness, and God provided this miraculous food, you know, angel food, manna, bread from heaven. But it was manna in the morning, manna at noontime, manna at supper time. I mean, it was manna, manna, manna. And you know, these guys probably boiled it, cooked it, fried it, deep fried it. I'm just kidding. I, I don't know how they fixed it. But after a while, manna was getting old, and they wanted meat. And you say, well, I would never be like that. No, I don't know. I've been to India. How many know when you're in India, you know, they're vegetarians. You don't eat a lot of meat. First thing I want to do when I leave India, I don't know if you feel this way, Edwin, I want a hamburger. I'm a carnivore. I want a good piece of beef. You know, I want something that I can relate to. Anybody relate to what I'm talking about? All right. Okay. I'm a true Albertan, Ralph, I'll tell you. So they're in the wilderness, they're complaining about this, and God says to Moses, I'm going to feed them. I'm going to give them meat for a month. And I just love Moses' response. You know, here's the guy that watched God do all these miracles, and, what, and this is what we read. But Moses said, here I am among 600,000 men on foot. Some of them were married, some had kids, probably two to three million people. I will give them meat to eat for a whole month. And Moses says, would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? What's Moses saying? How is this going to happen? Moses, you're doubting that God can do what he just told you. I like Moses, but you know, he's a human being. He's like us. God says, I'm going to do this, and we're going, I don't get it. How in the world is God going to do this? Come on now. Isn't that true? Do we ever do that? Sure we do. Moses is scratching his head. He can't see it in his mind. This is too much to believe. So God says to him, is the Lord's arm too short? You will now see whether or not what I say will come true for you. I always say, if God says it, you better believe it because God can do it. Bible says, now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail. That's probably this the best translation. You know, It was a bird of some kind. Okay, It came from the sea. You know, maybe from the Mediterranean. God brought a huge wind, and all of a sudden, there were bird everywhere. And they were, they were, they brought, he brought them down all around the camp to about three feet above the ground, so as far as a day's walk in any direction. In other words, there were bird everywhere. They were like three feet deep and a mile beyond the camp. They were like birds flying everywhere. People were gathering up these birds. You know, how many go, this is amazing. Well, can't God create a great wind? Can't God call all the birds? Can't God bring them in? He just did all of these things. And all that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and they gathered quail. Wow, did God ever answer their prayer? But, you know, I want to just say one little thing. Not only should we believe for great things and right things, but I think when we pray, you know, we need to know that God can do it. The big thing about prayer is, we better be careful what we pray for. Because God may give you what you ask for. And after you get it, you may go, I didn't really want this. You know, you keep bugging God, God will say, okay, you want that? I'll give it to you. The psalmist on this text later on reflects that God says he gave them the desires of their hearts but sent leanness to their soul. 
be careful what you ask for. Now, God was upset with these guys because they had been complaining and belly aching, and so God judged them. And this is a lesson to all of us, you know, just be careful what you're asking for. It says, but while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, the place was named Kabrath Hatava because there they buried the people who had craved other food. They had craved other food. What do you mean? God had already provided them food, but they weren't satisfied with God's provision, so they wanted something other than what God was giving them. And God says, fine, I'll give you something other than what I'm giving you, but you're going to pay the price. And in this case, it was the price of death. Wow. You know, how many people, they go, I really want this, I really want this. You know, we just, I read it, Psalm 4 tonight. You know, God says, be careful. You know, we can love these things that are actual delusions. We can love these things that are idols. We can begin to pursue things that are not the things of God. We can go after the things of this world. We can begin to lust after, desire after things that are not healthy for us. And we can aspire to them and pray for them. Finally, God opens a door and we go after those things. But you know what? It does some damage to our relationship with God. It's true. And I've witnessed it over the years. Some of you have as well. You notice the expression that Jesus, in stating this prayer, he says, not only, wish, you know, he said, you need to believe that you have received them. It's past tense. Interesting. When you ask, believe that you have received them, past tense. By the way, in the Greek, it's in past tense too. What, is he, what does this mean? It says, when I ask God for something, I should have such confidence that as far as I'm concerned, it's as good as done. And I'm going to give you why we should be praying this way. I'm going to give you probably my favorite verse on prayer. You know, in the simply 1 John 5, 14, it says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, we've got to settle this. You know, if we're going to start asking God for stuff, maybe we've got to ask the first question, is this really what God wants? Before I even ask, maybe I should need to get down and say, okay, God, is, if you want this, you know, is this something that's according to your will? And if it's according to your will, and as I ask it, then I have to have a confidence. It says that when I approach God, if I ask anything according to his will, he, he will hear me. He will hear you. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. Is that amazing? How many think that's effectual prayer? I can come up and say, okay, God, I know this is what you want. I'm asking for it. As far as I'm concerned, it's as good as done. I love that. That's the kind of praying we need to start doing. That's effectual praying. That's answers to prayer are going to come our way, okay? Let me move on to point number two. The second condition is forgiveness. It's interesting. Jesus is the one that brought it up. Do you realize that hindrances or impediments in our relationship with others actually affect our relationship with God? Listen to it, Mark eleven twenty five. 25. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sin. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your sins. Now, some of you, when you're reading in your Bible, that's actually in the footnotes. You know, a copy has probably brought it up. Don't panic. That last, verse 26, is actually... In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 15, quoted exactly that way. So regardless, we know this is what God says. Basically what he's saying is, if you and I do not forgive, God can't forgive us. How many go, that's a pretty shocking statement. 
As a matter of fact, in the Lord's Prayer, that's what he said. Forgive us our trespasses, our debts, as we forgive those who trespass or have debts against us. In other words, my condition of forgiveness from God is determined on my ability to forgive others. And I'm gonna tell you why that's important. I am really convinced that if we truly experience God's forgiveness, we will have a forgiving spirit. That's the spirit of the Holy Spirit. That's the spirit of God. God is, God is a forgiving spirit, and if God's spirit is living in you, you will have a forgiving spirit. And if you don't have a forgiving spirit, I would say, God, do a work in my heart. It's hard. I need to have a forgiving spirit. Now, let me ask a different question. I'm going to go on a little different track here, and I'm going to, I'm going to wind up here. I've got 10 minutes, and it's going to go real quick. Think about this. Most of us, if I asked you tonight, and you're a believer, and I asked you the question, how is your relationship with God? You know what I'd get from you? Pastor, it's good. We're cool. God and I are cool. How many know God is easy to get along with? Anybody notice that? How many say God is easy to get along with? Sure. He's a spirit. You know? And half the time, I'm not paying attention to what he's saying. We get along great. You know? I tell him what to do. Sometimes he does it. Sometimes he doesn't. You know, I got this great relationship. That's not the way to test your relationship with God, okay? I feel good. I got a peace. Everything's copacetic with me and God. We're all, we're, all we're, we're good. We're cool. Here's the way you know how good your relationship was with God. Let me ask a different question. This will give me the real answer. How's your relationships with other people? Well, pastor, there's a few people that I'm not getting along with quite so good. Now, I'm, now we're meddling, right? Let me point out something. The way we're relating to other people is actually indicative of how we're relating to God. Let me show you something. You know, remember I told you I'm pulling stuff out of the book of Numbers? I read from uh, a different uh, translation here. Um, uh, Oh yeah, this is where I want to go. So in my devotional Bible, I like to read different translations, you know. That's, That's okay because, oh by the way, there isn't one right translation. I know that freaks everybody out. But it's actually written in Hebrew. <laughs> okay? But in this translation, as I was reading my devotional time this week, this verse just kind of leaped out at me. You know, I, I keep thinking, you know, God, you're always preparing sermons inside of me. I can't help myself. You know, it's not even, I'm not even looking to do that. I'm just looking for God to speak to me. And here was the word the Lord spoke to Moses. Tell the Israelites, when a man or woman commits any sin against another person, okay, that person acts unfaithfully towards the Lord. What's that? When I treat another person poorly, I'm actually sinning against God. When I treat another creature that God has created in his image and I treat them poorly, I'm actually treating God that way. When I, when I get angry at a person, when I lash out, when I, when I, when I seek, you know, whatever, Whatever, the way I treat somebody, I look down on them, I'm indifferent to them, I lack compassion towards them. Whatever that is, that's the way I'm treating Jesus. I can prove this to you. Think of, you know, Matthew 25. If you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. If you've gone to visit them in prison, you've clothed, you've fed the sick. You know, sometimes we look at people and we look at them and we say, yeah, they've got issues, I'm not going to help them out. Who are we to judge them? That's not our job. You don't know what's going on. Yeah, but I feel taken advantage of, Pastor. I, I, who cares? They're God's creature. They're going to answer to God, not me. I'm supposed to love people, right? 
So what we need to understand is that all sin against whomever is actually and ultimately a sin against the Lord. And so whenever we harbor resentment, vengeful passion, and hostility towards others, even if they have offended us or hurt us, we jeopardize something precious inside of our own souls. We are no longer free. We become a prisoner of hatred and hurt rather than a conveyor of hope and love. You know, all you got to do is, you know, turn to Matthew 18, the parable of the, the king who forgave the person, you know, this great debt, and then he goes out and he's upset with someone who's, you know, owes him a leaser debt. How many know that parable? Remember that? Isn't that an amazing story? And then Jesus, uh, the king, King Jesus, God, he, he puts that person back in prison. Why? When you and I are unforgiving When you and I don't express forgiveness, we're in a prison within our own soul. I'm going to share a story that happened to me. I don't do that very often, but I'm going to share a little bit about myself. Some of you probably know this. Some of you probably come to dinner with the pastor. I grew up in a home. My dad was an alcoholic. I really, I really, every boy always looks up to their dad. It's just the way we're wired. You know, I had a neat dad. A lot of things. He was strong. He was smart. He was an entrepreneur. He was affirming. He's, you know, I have to admit, you know, my dad, I, did, I wasn't getting pounded all the time. He wasn't beating. You know, he was actually, there was a lot of grace inside of my dad, and he was very affirming in many ways, and he spoke a lot of life-giving words to me. He really did. He believed in me. He trusted me. It, it, sometimes I thought to a level I couldn't believe it. Now as an adult, I go, I never trust a kid at that level, but my dad did that. He really believed in me. And you know what? What does that do to a young person when someone really believes in you? Someone that you look up to and love and they really believe in you. Man, you just want to do anything you can for them. But you know when a person's battling alcoholism, someone who's broken in their own lives, someone who allows their addiction to take over control of their lives, they always do it at the expense of those that they love. And there was disappointment and hurt and heartache and rejection and abandonment issues in my soul too. Had all these positive things and then I also had all this negative stuff, right? Does that make sense? And so by the time I'm 18, 19 years old, eventually I become a Christian at 21 and um, I'm in church and you know, I, my dad has had very little contact with me for three years. I've been on my own. And you know, the pastor in the church became like a father figure to me. I can still remember the day, you know, this, this shocked me. Because, you know, I'm living on my own, and the pastor said, Paul, I really love you. Man, those, it was like, you know, pouring water to a thirsty soul. You know, somebody spoke those words, because I was alone. Lonely, alone. Someone loved me as a, just for who I am. Very powerful. Do you know, I made a decision as a new believer because I read the Bible. I wanted to be a forgiving person. I had experienced God's grace and forgiveness, and so I chose. Forgave my dad, forgave my mom, forgave people that had hurt me because I knew God had forgiven me. I, I knew it was a sinner. And eventually I went on to Bible college and graduated and went into ministry, and eventually I was pastoring our church. And I went to a conference in Calgary. And I still remember this conference, you know, I, I wasn't that excited about it. The speaker was, you know, not really well known. doesn't really matter who the speakers are, by the way. Human beings, we're so locked into all that nonsense. God can use anybody to speak to you. This guy came from the North Pole. He was a radio 
he was just a colorful character, but he was talking about bitterness. I was just thinking, wow, this guy's really out of touch. I mean, we're all ministers here and our wives, you know, but then, you know, now, now it makes more sense as I reflect back. You know, a lot of people can hurt you as a pastor and maybe there were people battling resentment and bitterness towards people in their church. I don't know. I was good. I had a great church. I was happy. Church was happy. I loved the people. They loved me. I wasn't dealing with any of those kind of issues. This sermon was not affecting me. I was going, I am not connecting. I'm not, you know, I, want, I don't know who he's speaking to. I'm not speaking to me. But you know, the Holy Spirit has a way in our lives to peel back layers in our soul. At the end of the service, you know, it was, it was good. I mean, he was a great communicator. He was, you know, lots of stories, a lot of humor, and a lot of transparency and vulnerability. Finally, at the end, he said, I want you to stand up. I want you to turn to the person next to you. As soon as you do that, I said, the first person that comes to your mind, I want you to start praying for that person. I turned to the person next to me. I didn't know who they were. Started to think. The first person that came to my mind was my dad. I started praying. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit opened me up. You know, I have now discovered something. Forgiveness is not just a one-time event. Forgiveness is a journey. There were broken places inside of me that I had never touched. There were things inside of my soul I had never experienced. God opened me up. It was unbelievable. I was so vulnerable. I felt the pain. I felt the rejection. I realized, you know what, the Spirit was basically saying, you know what, you have some unresolved resentment, hurt, anger, and bitterness towards your father because he really let you down and disappointed you. And all of a sudden, I began to cry. You have to understand something. I don't wear my emotions on my sleeves. You guys know I'm you've been your pastor for a long time. I'm not, you know, this highly, dem- you know, some people, they, they can just cry in a do- drop of a hat. They're very tenderhearted. You know, I kind of envy that sometimes, but I'm not wired that way. We're all wired differently. At that moment, I started weeping. I started sobbing. It became uncontrollable. As a matter of fact, you know, when you really start crying, it becomes messy. You know, stuff comes out of your nose, out of your eyes, you know. Somebody brought a box of Kleenex. I think I went right through an entire box of Kleenex. I mean, there was Kleenex all around me. I just sobbed. I couldn't, I could not stop weeping because now I was in touch with the pain in my soul and I was processing the hurt within me. You know, a lot of us were afraid to process the pain in our soul because we, we go, I don't know what to do with all this stuff. You know, can I just say something? There is no safer place to process pain than the presence of the living God. The one who opened up my soul to it. And I'm going to tell you something. In that 30 minutes, I came to a place of peace. I had forgiven my father again. I had done it before. I did it again. Isn't that great? Wow. I walked out of there. I felt like 10,000 pounds came off my back. It was an amazing experience. You know, I'm done with this. I've truly forgiven my dad. No, not quite. As great as that experience was, later on, my dad was dying. He had cancer. Went to visit him. I did not mean to get into this conversation, but I don't know. Things opened up. God decided, okay, new layer. New layer. Oh, my goodness. Why am I going through this again, God? Thing opens up, and my dad and I have this amazing conversation. I am sobbing, I'm broken. I'm telling him, listen, Dad, I love you. I know that you love me, but I know that you've had so much brokenness in your life. Dad, I'm so sorry. 
that, you know, we just didn't have the relationship I longed for. I know that today, it's not your, I'm not blaming you. You just couldn't give me something you didn't have. But I want you to know I love you, I forgive you, and I need to say that to you because I've been so broken by this experience, you know. And I wept, and, and then, you know, my last, my father's last days, this was the conversation we had. How many think that's pretty profound? What am I trying to tell you tonight? Forgiveness is a journey. You see, if we're going to really be effectual in our communication with God, number one, we need to believe God exists. We need to believe for what God wants to have happen and not what we want to have happen. We need to believe according to the will of God. We need to, you know, believe in such a way that when we ask God and we know it's his will, we have this confidence that it's a done deal. God's going to do it. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know when he's going to do it. It's not my job to tell him how to do it. I just rest in my soul to know that God will do it. But I also know that my prayer life is affected in how I relate to other people. And, do you know, one of the things that really helped me in my marriage was the fact that I knew that I had to have a good relationship with Patty. Because 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, you know, if the husband doesn't have a good relationship with his wife, his prayers are hindered. And so it was forced, I mean, you guys could probably go to work, you could have a three-week spat going on with your spouse, but I can't preach when I don't have a good relationship with Patty. I can't sit down and tell other people to get their act together when my life is falling apart. I just can't handle that stuff. It's just messing with my head. You know, I have to deal with this stuff. And so my job was forcing me to have a better relationship with my wife. It really was, you know. But I want to just say something. Forget your job for a minute. It doesn't matter what kind of a job you have. If you don't have a a transparent, loving, forgiving, gracious relationship, it's affecting your relationship with God. That's the problem. And it may not be with your spouse. It may be with a child. It could be with a coworker. It could be with a sibling. I don't know who it is in your life, but you know what? You have been wounded. There's not one person in this room could say to me, Pastor, I've never been hurt. I've never been offended. I've never been wounded. I've never been disappointed. I've never been let down. Not one of you could probably come up to me and say, I've had the perfect life. I'm the Teflon kid. Nothing's ever hurt me. No, I think if you were honest with me, you'd say, Pastor, I've been wounded in this area. And for some of us in this room, maybe you're like me, you just sit down and kind of move on and you, you, know, you forgive the best you can and just keep moving forward, but maybe there's a woundedness in your soul. I'm gonna have you stand tonight. I'm gonna have you do something I normally don't do in our church because I believe that what God wants to do tonight is a great work in your soul. And so now, with every head bowed and every eyes closed, I wanna ask the question. I'm gonna go up here so I can just see a little better, but I wanna ask the question tonight. God's speaking to your heart. You've been hurt. You've been wounded. You've been disappointed. How many here, you can say that's true of me? Just raise your hand. That's you. That's you. That's who you are. Just raise your hand up. Just leave it up. I'm going to pray with you. What I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to pray with you, and then I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to have you, when we leave the service tonight, this is what we do as Christians. We hear something like this, we're deeply moved, and then we just walk out. No, don't do that. I'm going to have you sit in your pew or kneel down in your pew. I want you to stay for five minutes. I want you to say, okay, Holy Spirit, you've opened it up now. You've opened up this onion in my soul. You've opened up the innermost part of my being. You want to do something in me. You want to touch my soul. You want to bring healing in this broken place in my life. 
You want to begin to repair this relationship because you know what? This thing is affecting my relationship with you. And I don't even know it. But tonight, I want that to come to an end. I want you to heal the brokenness and the hurt in my soul. I want you to help me in the journey called forgiveness. I want to have an effectual prayer life. I want to have access to you. I want to have communion with you. Because you know, a lot of us, you know why we don't believe God answers prayer? Because we've been praying and there's been no answers because there's been stuff inside of our soul that's keeping us from experiencing profound change in our lives and in the lives of others. And so Father, I come before you tonight and, I, and, and you know what? You've done this for me. Not just on one occasion, but on many occasions. You've opened me up like an onion. You've pulled back layers that I didn't even know existed. You've exposed things in my soul, and then you began to address them. And I know, Holy Spirit, that you are a healer of our innermost being. Lord, you can minister grace in the wounded places of our soul. You can do that tonight. You can affect change in us. Because when we have these woundings, when we, when we relate to people in brokenness and woundedness, Lord, so often we just continue the stream of wounding others, of misunderstanding, of, of reading the events and creating a meaning that doesn't really exist, Lord. We, we just take on offense after offense, but Lord, tonight, you want to end that chain. You want to bring wholeness to our innermost being. You want to bring healing into our lives. You want to restore and repair relationships, but Lord, you can't do that if we're a walking wounded person who doesn't even realize that we are. And I pray tonight that you would dig deep and that you would heal powerfully and it would be sweet. We would have a sweet time tonight in your divine presence where you would process this amazing work of grace into the broken places of our soul so that we can truly experience grace and forgiveness and that we can extend it. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.